time for The Outspoken Cyclist, the weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for January 9th, 2021. I hope you are well and safe. Wow, it's been one hell of a week here in the U.S., and I think we'll just leave it at that. My first guest is blunt, to the point, and doesn't mince words when it comes to the mayor of New York City and the NYPD. Gersh Kuntzman is the editor of Streets Blog NYC and Streets Blog. And this past week, he published a Streets Blog entry based upon a recent report by Transalt, about New York City's failure to add bike parking, although it was promised, and what the consequences have been. Gersh and I cover a lot more than that, but that article is what piqued my interest in the first place. Then we'll have the first of four special segments this month on training. Chris Carmichael, the founder and head coach of CTS Training Systems in Colorado, joins me today to talk about getting dropped, or more to the point, not getting dropped. And finally, we'll head over to London to speak with researcher Paul Lee from Deloitte's TMT, Technology, Media, and Telecommunications Division. Back in December of 2019, he and two colleagues published their research in a report titled Cycling's Technological Transformation, Making Bicycling Faster, Easier, and Safer. But little did we know that a worldwide pandemic would ensue in the following months, and I wanted to know how some of the predictive ideas he was talking about were still on track going forward. So let's begin with some questions I had for Gersh Kuntzman of Streets Blog. I wanted to know whether COVID made it better in the city because there are fewer cars on the roads. I wanted to know whether bike parking had been made more available so that those who are still working and needing the fast, convenient, and affordable transportation that a bicycle can offer had more of it. And are there any remedies for the failures that the big city to the east of us can offer as we continue to expand our infrastructure here in Northeast Ohio and elsewhere around the country? Here's my conversation with Gersh with answers to those questions and a whole lot more. Hello, Gersh. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. How are you? This is a big honor for me because I love cycling and I love people who are outspoken. So this is fantastic. Well, that would be me. (laughs) That would be me in more ways than one. Um, So I have a question. You're editor of Streets Blog. Are you editor of Streets Blog altogether or just New York City? Um, NYC and USA. And then the other Streets Blogs uh, operate independently. Okay. Okay. Well, I follow the NYC one mainly because I always look to New York as being like what we'd like to be sometimes, not always, but mostly, and and where things are usually going. And so you get to see all this information and all the transportation issues. I mean, when we were talking before we went on the air, 
You said you've already ridden 15 miles through three boroughs today. Well, that's just a day in the life of Gersh Kuntzman uh, as editor of Streets Blog. I mean, you, you have to be out on the street in order to see what's going on. Today, I was just chasing a random story about the New York City Police Department put out a memo telling the cops to stop parking illegally, which they do to the level of infuriation of cyclists and pedestrians. They park on sidewalks, they park in bike lanes, they park in bus lanes. And I was driving, biking around and sure enough, saw probably 50 examples of cops ignoring the memo from their own boss. And I got to tell you, if I ignored a memo from my boss, I'd be fired. But that doesn't happen in New York. Wow. Well, and I also saw the sad news that the first cyclist of the year was killed. What, today? Yeah, today. Um, last year, we had 26 cyclists die on the streets of New York. The year before, 29, which was a high watermark of the Vision Zero era here in New York City. You know, there's no way to say whether the first one happening so early in the year means that we're going to have a bad year or a good year, but every even one is too many. In fact, the mayor says that his goal is to get to zero cycling and pedestrian deaths by 2024. He's not even close. Uh, so we're, you know, we're all just shaking our heads all the time, frankly. It's awful. And it deters cycling, which is just infuriating to me, infuriating. I want to talk about the article that you published this week, actually January 5th. And it was about uh, the city's failure to add bike parking and how it hurts businesses, costs lives, increases theft, reduces cycling. And I want to know how all that is connected and what the promises were to begin with. Well, I bit off a lot in that with that headline saying basically it causes all these uh, deleterious effects. But let's break them down. First of all, the mayor of the city of New York uh, promised to it's very simple. Fifteen hundred bike racks. You know, those are just simple rings that you can lock your bike to. He wanted to put 1,500 around the city in every year, which New York City is, you know, we got 9 million people. It's a very big city physically. Uh, 1,500 bike racks is not a hard thing to do. I think all but two years of the de Blasio administration, he's met that goal. Most years he falls hundreds of bike racks short. The mayor also promised at various times to, to create uh, a method or a pilot program or a full program to encourage private entrepreneurs to set up bike parking lots uh, and something like an Unipod. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like a, a big square pod that holds about 20 bikes that has a, a key card that members can can sign up for at a very low cost. There's other models out there for secure bike parking. The city also promised to create two score of bus shelter style bike parking uh, and it only ended up building about 18 of them. So they just fall short on everything. And the reason I wrote the article the way I did is because when you don't build bike parking, there's a cascading effect across the cycling community and, and then the broader community. But first in the cycling community, there's multiple effects. One is people are reluctant to ride their bike into their workplace if they're and, and have it sit out in front of the workplace for seven hours, say, because there's a great risk of theft. I mean, bike thefts are soaring during the COVID pandemic here in New York City, partly because bike ridership is soaring during the COVID pandemic. So if people are reluctant to ride their bike to work, uh, that eliminates what they call the safety and numbers effect, which is a well-documented phenomenon that the more cyclists that are on a roadway, the safer they are, partly because drivers literally have to pay more attention to them because they're in their face. So if, if you lose the safety and numbers effect, then you lose that element of safety. But here's the other thing that's the part that the mayor re, – it really should connect with Mayor de Blasio because he is a 
a Vision Zero person. Um, if you don't have bike parking, then you're d- discouraging cycling. If you discourage cycling, you know, and fewer people do it, they feel less safe. Then you lose that pressure to build more protected bike lanes or other bike infrastructure, which further declines cycling because people continue to feel unsafe. And, you know, that's a real challenge because in order for anything to get built in New York City, whether it's a road, a new bridge, a new prison or whatever it's going to be, there, there needs to be a, a great deal of political pressure put onto the system. Cyclists and uh, through Streets Blog, but even before Streets Blog, have been very good about putting that pressure on politicians, but it's only fairly recently that that pressure has resulted in some positive moves, you know, in terms of more bike infrastructure and other things, because it's slowly become uh, something that people can run on. You know, candidates do run on bike infrastructure. Bike parking, however, is not one of those things. It's it's seen as a luxury when, in fact, for all the reasons you mentioned and I mentioned, um, it's not a luxury. Exactly. Let me remind listeners, I'm speaking with Gersh Kuntzman. He is the editor of Streets Blog and Streets Blog NYC. And if you don't follow that particular, uh, I guess it's a blog. (laughs) If you don't follow the blog, every single day there are interesting articles. Even if you don't live in the New York area, uh, some of the Streets Blog stuff is across the country. But I always find that what goes on in New York is applicable pretty much across the country on some level. One of the things that really surprised me and which I didn't understand about New York and parking is that there are 100 more free, and the word free is what got me, parking spaces for cars compared to one for bicycles. I thought that parking in New York City was not only limited, but outrageously expensive. How is this possible? It's a very good point you're making. So the issue with New York is, obviously, as I said, it's a very big city physically. So this whole broad sections of the city where even if you had progressive parking policies that we've talked about uh, in, in the streets block community, you still wouldn't be able to charge for street parking in areas of the city where it's just not very dense and, and people have a lot, and most of the houses have driveways, you know, like any kind of, really any city in, in the United States. But there are obviously dense parts of the city, super dense parts of the city, where, believe it or not, parking on the street of a residential neighborhood in New York City is completely free. The only requirement you have is you have to move the car once a week for half an hour or an hour and a half to accommodate the street sweepers so that the city doesn't become filthy. But that's it. And as a result, about a million uh, households in New York City uh, have access to a car, uh, one or more, but mostly one. And that doesn't sound like a lot, except when you realize that New York, that's a tiny minority of the city. In parts of the city, fewer than 10 percent of the households have access to a car. Yet nonetheless, virtually all of the streetscape is set aside for the storage or movement of vehicles. And when I say storage, I'm talking about free parking. So when you try to advocate for progressive parking policies that would price the curb, that's a term you'll hear a lot, pricing the curb, people freak out, even though a tiny minority of New York City residents own or have access to a car. The vast majority of New Yorkers, and in some neighborhoods, I'm seriously talking about 90% of the people, would benefit dramatically from streetscape policies that would either price the curb so that there was always room for loading zones, for example, so that delivery trucks, because we're all ordering from Amazon, delivery trucks have to park somewhere. Now, in New York City, they double park. Now, in New York City, if an Amazon truck double parks, 
suddenly that roadway is blocked or worse, it's unsafe for cyclists and pedestrians or whomever. But the city refuses to even think about these policies because free parking is seen as some sort of birthright here, even though, as I said, the vast minority of New Yorkers have access to a vehicle. Unbelievable. It's just unbelievable to me. One of the areas of the article that also interested me was about theft. Now, Hmm. I know more people are riding because of the pandemic. They're not using public transportation. They're out doing more recreation. How would more parking spaces, would it help with theft, with with the problem with theft? Well, only secure bike parking would help with theft. And that would have to be in the form of, I don't know, my story mentioned that London has this weird thing where they, I shouldn't say weird, it's all, it's common sense. They have these little pods that kind of look like, I don't know, they look like half a water pipe, really thick water pipe on its side. And it's, it's got like a handle and you open it up and you can roll three or four bikes into it in the space of a, of a car. And I think they rent that out to residents for like $7 a month or something, very nominal. So that, that would help, certainly. I don't think necessarily the failure of the city to install street racks ha- is directly connected to the theft thing. What's happening with the theft is that more people are cycling and more people are suffering. So there's going to be more there's going to be more crime of every type. And we're seeing that across the board. The big thing about bike theft in New York City, and this is the part that gets to the very core of the problems of equity in New York City, which is an incredibly racist city with a racist government, which I'm not afraid to say, uh, which does not build bike infrastructure, does not extend bike share to communities of color nearly as rapidly as it does in white and wealthy communities. So having said that, bike theft is an incredible deterrent to cycling for people of lower income. The studies show that, that if you ask someone uh, with a household income of $30,000, are you going to bike after their bike has been stolen? They're universally reluctant to get another bike to to cycle in because the fact is they cannot afford it. And cycling is in this city, I mean, we have a subway system that even the subway system is too expensive for a lot of people, working class people in this city, and they bike around. And this notion that low income people or communities of color don't cycle is this incredible mistake that the city makes. The fact is the vast majority of cyclists in the city are people of color and are low-income people, and they need to be safe with secure bike parking, protected bike lanes, bike share, and and real uh, enforcement infrastructure that cuts down on reckless driving. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's infuriating, right? It's infuriating. That is exactly right, infuriating, because we have been talking about equity – and inclusion on this show for months and months and months. And everybody during this whole pandemic issue has been saying more people are riding. Everybody, But we seem to be having the same issues, whether people are staying home or whether they're going to work. And the people who are going to work are the people who need some sort of transportation because they're the service workers, first frontline workers, I, I just don't understand why it's so screwed up. I, I would use a much more strong thing, but we are kind of on the air. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll speak with Gersh some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com.
We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. When we left off, we were talking with Gersh about the state of our transportation system for bikes here in the States. It's it's much more dramatically screwed up here in the United States, frankly. I mean, if you saw what Paris and London did and Berlin during the COVID pandemic, just as a way of helping people get around safely and quickly, uh, for the mostly for healthcare workers, but that that was just sort of the, the gauze on it. The fact is they create scores of miles of bike lanes, you know, and in New York City, yes, we built 28.6 miles of protected bike lanes last year. The goal before the pandemic had built, been to build 30. So they actually fell short of the goal, but it was the most bike lanes that the de Blasio administration uh, had ever built in a single year. And we put that in the blog and, and immediately the reaction was, well, wait, but why, why is it so low? Even though it's a, a record for the de Blasio administration, it's ultimately low given what COVID, you know, Rahm Emanuel used to say, never let a crisis go to waste. Like you had a crisis. Very few people were driving between March and I'd say about early June. Cars on the road were very low. And you had an opportunity to literally just take take some lanes away and nobody would have felt it. And basically nobody would have complained. And as a result of not doing that, not only did you not have as big a cycling boom as you would have and not a, as big a strength in numbers, safety and numbers effect, but more than that, you actually had more fatalities last year on the roads of New York City because drivers were speeding so like recklessly. The numbers of speeding tickets, automated tickets, of course, because the NYPD doesn't do anything, um, automated speeding tickets was soaring in the early parts of the pandemic as a result of all this speeding going on. Well, all of that speeding led to, believe it or not, because there were fewer cars on the road, fewer crashes, but more bloodier crashes. So actually more death on the road, even though there were 20 percent fewer crashes. Once again, we're speaking with Gersh Kunzman. He is the editor of Streets Blog NYC and streetsblog.org. Let's talk about a perfect world for a moment. We do have a a vaccine coming. People are going to be going back to work. You and I are still focused on the bicycle infrastructure world. What are some of the recommendations that you would make to a mayor who might listen or even to a governor who might listen once his head is out of this COVID cloud? Well, first of all, our governor in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo, doesn't does not listen. Transportation is not at all what he thinks is important, and that's fine. Transportation is mostly a municipal responsibility here in New York State. So we have a mayor, Mayor De Blasio. I talk to him every day when he takes my questions. He knows what's coming whenever I ask a question. But but here's the thing: putting aside COVID, because uh, obviously we will have a society that will quote unquote go back to normal. But during the COVID crisis, under pressure from Streets Blog, believe it or not. Uh, the mayor did appoint a surface transportation recommendation panel to come up with 15 or 20 tangible ideas for how we can, you know, as Joe Biden would say, build back better. And the panel came up with some good recommendations, really solid recommendations. They took their job seriously. And then the mayor completely ignored their recommendations. Uh, and the panel actually had to go public with how disappointed they were. But the recommendations were pretty basic. One is, look, you need to limit the amount of driving that is happening in this city. The mayor has, himself has spoken about that, but how do you do it? Well, you've got to take some lanes away and you've got to price the curb and you've got to toll the crap out of the bridges. So there's a number of things, pedestrianized broad sections of the city. Let, let's talk about Europe. Let's not talk about Europe. Who cares about Europe? Let's talk about Bogota, Colombia, one of the cycling paradises of the world. During the COVID crisis, Bogota, which is already a, a world-leading example of road safety, uh, kind of progressive approach to road safety, 
did even more than Paris. They, they, they pedestrianized a lot of things. They put down a lot of pop-up protected bike lanes. All of that's possible. But as a result, when the virus recedes, it's like the, the, the tide going out. You're left with all the positive remnants if you, if you do the job during the crisis. New York City didn't do that. So where, you know, but the mayor's talked about it. Where are the HOV lanes, for example? Why, 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 are, why is someone able to get in a car anywhere within three hours of New York City, drive into the city, park his car on the street for free, at great risk of, of hitting someone, a cyclist, a kid, filling the air with a, with a toxic gas that we can't breathe, and not be charged for that. I mean, at, at the very least, you know, look, we, we tax cigarettes to discourage their use. And it actually worked. Mayor Bloomberg, before Mayor de Blasio, put a huge tax on cigarettes. And smoking is down dramatically. Well, the same thing can be true of, of car driving. You can reduce it, make it available for when you have an emergency, someone has to go to you know cancer treatment at Sloan Kettering on the Upper East Side. Okay, that's a car situation. But the rest of us in the best in the city with the best transit in the country. I mean, you know, no offense, Seattle, no offense, Chicago. The most transit in the in the country. You don't need a car. You don't need a car. And if you feel like you need a car, you're going to pay for it. And so, more and more, we are seeing candidates running on that. You know, I, I did a bun- bunch of interviews last week with council candidates because we have a big election coming up in June. And there are people who are willing to run on the idea that, hey, you want to be a big baller and drive into Manhattan in the middle of the day because you want to ha- have your own ride or whatever. You're going to pay for that. You know, and that's fine. That's, and so maybe we'll see some change in that respect. What else could make things not only better to breathe, more healthy, safer, and broaden the idea that cycling is OK because drivers are angry and I think a lot of their anger comes from fear. Like, I, I just don't want to hit one of these guys, but he or she, they're in my way. You know, how yeah. can you change that whole mentality? I'm not sure. Well, a, a couple of things. Look, I, I have to say, New York City has done an incredible job of building protected infrastructure and, and non-protected you know, bike lanes, hundreds of miles of them. Uh, and I will say, it is harder to drive. It's harder to be a safe driver now because hmm. there is a lot of stuff going on. We've got a lot of construction, we've got bike lanes, we've got street vendors, etc. Okay, I get it. So they're frustrated, they're angry, they're nervous. So don't drive. That's one thing. Reduce reduce the reasons that they drive. That's one thing off the bat. But then let's talk about another thing. You need to design the roads so that you're not relying on the police to enforce them. You need to design the roads so that you can't drive fast or you can't park in a way that eliminates the daylighting at the intersection. You can't go fast through an intersection because they've installed a, a raised crosswalk, you know, like a speed bump, but it's a crosswalk because most of the crashes happen at intersections. Right. So the city has spent a lot of time redesigning intersections, but they're not they're not foolproof. And if you if you do the engineering and you do the automated enforcement, because studies do show that when people get an automated speeding ticket, very few of them get a second one. So that's good. You can design and automate your way out of a lot of crashes. Now, the bottom line is you you still have to do some enforcement and you still have to uh, hold reckless drivers accountable. Now, we can have a whole debate about whether you want to have an incarceration crisis. You don't want to necessarily fill your jails with reckless drivers, but there needs to be some sort of accountability so a driver knows, wait a minute, if I rush, if I go through that red light and hit something, you know, I'm going to lose my license for a year. By the way, which doesn't happen in New York State, doesn't happen. You can kill someone with a car in New York State 
and suffer not a single punishment of any kind, whether it's a $50 ticket, 30 days in jail, suspension of your license for a short period, 30 days, a month, two months, doesn't happen. Huh. So these are the things we talk about. That's interesting because, you know, the common thought around the best way to commit murder is to kill somebody on a bike with your car, you know, with this slap on the wrist mentality. And so what about enforcement? What about prosecutors and um, and trials and judges and, and actual legal remedies to some of these horrific crashes? Well, I want to be, I want to caution all your listeners that what I'm about to say might be considered controversial. I am defiantly anti-police in the sense that the police department, at least in the city of New York, but I'm sure this is true in other cities, is an almost entirely automobile-focused police force, meaning all the cops are in cars all day long. They have no, no understanding. I've spoken to them about this. No understanding of any road user other than car drivers. And as a result, we've covered many, many cases where the police completely botch an investigation because they're unaware even of the basic rules that a cyclist has of right away in a certain situation, et cetera. So I'm, I'm not going to say we need to throw more police at the problem because police are the problem. But I will say that there are plenty of rules on the books here in New York City that already are helping a little bit. For example, there's a, a city council law that passed a law last year and the mayor signed it that would, uh, if you get more than 15 camera-issued speeding tickets in a year, you have to go through a restorative justice kind of you know, driver training class. And if you don't go through the driver training class, they seize your car. Okay, so that's good because that's not a carceral solution, but it gets a reckless driver off the road. But the downside is you have to get 15 camera-issued speeding tickets in a calendar year in order to have the lowest of the low-hanging fruits be thrown at you, which is you have to go through a three-hour defensive driving class. Now, the original bill was, was going to be five speeding tickets, which is at least a little bit more reasonable. But right. the mayor mayor thought, well, wait a minute. If I, if I make it five speeding tickets, I'm going to be locking up a lot of people because there'd be you know, five speeding tickets. You'd have 10, 20, 30,000 people. So they raised it to 15 to get the worst 2,000 drivers. But still, 15 speeding tickets in a year is, is – if you're doing that, you are a danger to yourself and others. And – under the state laws, you could be committed for being a danger to yourself and others. Again, I'm not advocating for uh, carceral solutions, but we need to engineer and automate and do restorative justice and, and driver training so that, frankly, car drivers see the damage they do. Well, it seems to be rampant, not just in New York. It is a problem countrywide. You know, not everybody is out there wearing Lycra and blowing red lights. They really Correct. are using their bicycles for important things like going to work or delivering stuff that you've ordered. It's, it's very sad. And, and that is, that is the impression among the NYPD uh, specifically that anybody on a bike is just some whack job um, that, you know, and, and they also, they also just subscribe to the notion that they can just basically ignore the delivery worker problem because it's just a bunch of immigrants who don't speak English anyway. So they don't have to feel like they have to answer to them when in fact, to protect and serve means to protect and serve everybody, uh, which is not the case with the NYPD. Wow, that's pretty scary. Doesn't make me want to move to New York anytime soon. Oh, no, we need you. Come on. Everybody should come to New York. We need your money. We need your money. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, Gersh, I, you know, we could talk about this stuff all day. I really find it fascinating. I know my listeners find it fascinating because 
they're all advocates of safer, better cycling. And that means better infrastructure. That means better understanding. That means better relationships between drivers and cyclists, between police and cyclists. So I really appreciate your work because it is clearly a 24-7, 365 thing to you. Well, I do. I do work hard. Thank you for that. (laughs) So if you are interested in what Gersh has to say, you can go to streetsblog.org. Well, the best thing to do is just go nyc.streetsblog.org or usa.streetsblog.org. Well, and they are fascinating to read. And thank you so much for talking with me. I hope you stay safe, stay well, have a great 2021, and I hope we get to talk again soon. I'm always here for you. All right. Thank you. Gersh Kuntzman is the editor of Streets Blog NYC and clearly an outspoken and enthusiastic advocate for cycling, as well as other transportation issues in New York City. If you are interested in knowing more about the work Streets Blog is doing, you can log on to streetsblog.org. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll learn about staying with the group, even on the hills, with Chris Carmichael. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland, 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. We are back. I'm Diane Jenks. If you find yourself not as strong as you used to be, or you're somewhat new to cycling and want to improve your strength and endurance when climbing especially, Chris Carmichael, head coach and founder of CTS Training Systems in Colorado, is here to help. Good morning, Chris. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for taking time to talk about training today. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing real well. Good. Well, you and I have decided we're going to do a month or a weekly feature for the month of January, giving listeners some tips on training. I'm really excited about this segment. I think it's going to be fun. The first question that was asked, and I think a lot of people will ask this question, uh, if you do not have this no drop rule in your group, what would you recommend to listeners who get dropped on hills during group rides? We, we get that all the time. Uh athletes will will come in and they'll say, um, I just want to be able to stay up with the group that I ride with. And, you know, we get, I'm fine for the first hour. And then we start getting into some rollers and it gets harder. And then there's a a really good climb in the last few miles of the ride. I always get dropped there. And so, and their goal is to just make it over the top of the hill with the group. So they're not feeling like they're either the last one rolling in or towards the tail end of the group, you know, you got to break it down first by the length of the climb. And if it's a climb that's longer than 30 seconds, longer than 90 seconds, longer than three minutes, you know, and then longer than five minutes, the training changes somewhat. The shorter hills that are a little more intense you have to focus a bit more on on developing the athlete's VO2 max. And that's basically the rate in which you're delivering the oxygen to the muscles. And uh, a lot of people think that's genetically established that, you know, you're, you're born with your VO2 max and you can't, can't raise it. I don't know how that ever got out there, but we hear it 
all the time. Everybody thinks, well, isn't that fixed? It's like, there's nothing fixed in us, you know? I mean, all of our energy systems and muscular systems and neurological systems within our body will all respond to training and respond meaning will adapt if done properly. And so if it's if it's shorter hill, uh, three minutes or less, you wanna focus a bit more on, your, on developing the VO2 max, which are really short, intense intervals, unfortunately. They're not a lot of fun, but they yield really big returns. And that's usually uh, doing intervals starting off with a series of shorter intervals, maybe 40 seconds as hard as you can go and 20 seconds easy and doing, depending upon the development that the athlete has. When I, when I say athlete, it's important to remember that we believe everybody's an athlete. You know, some of us are in training, some of us aren't, but we're all, our bodies are all the same inside and they all respond to a training load. So doing these short, starting off with 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off, and then progressing to some longer intervals with longer recovery times will aid in developing the athlete's VO2 max. If it's longer than three minutes, then we want to start looking at your power at lactate threshold, and we'll do longer, a little less intense intervals. That will be eight to 15 minutes in length and more sustainable power. Then last, one of the things we want to look at is power to weight ratio. Do we need to shed a few pounds. If, if <laughs> most of your listeners are like <laughs> me, then losing a few pounds is, is something that I could easily do. And just a few pounds can make a, uh, can make a serious difference in an athlete's ability to stay up with the group. Really great advice. Thank you. Can you do these intervals by yourself? You definitely want to do these intervals by yourself. And, you know, I would say my recommendation would be to start off doing them indoors on a, on a trainer or a indoor bike, you have less disruptions, you know, whether it's car pulling out in front of you, or let's say you're a minute into a, a eight minute interval, and all of a sudden you get hit a stoplight, you know, and it's like, oh, uh, you know, what do you do? Do you, do you pick up at the beginning? Or do you only do seven more minutes? And you want to get rid of the potential barriers or disruptions So start off doing these indoors. And when you get a little more accomplished, then you may want to incorporate doing these outdoors where you're looking at the different terrain and wind conditions and, you know, all these different things that affect us when we're outdoors. So all of this is really important to your training. And Chris is really offering you an opportunity. If you listen to the Outspoken Cyclist, you can use the code OUTSPOKENCYCLIST when you log on to trainright.com. And Chris is waiving the startup fee. Training can be month to month. You can get a year contract. You'll be able to work with a coach. Clearly, everything's long distance these days. So how often will they be able to talk with a coach, Chris? If you start off at our entry-level package, it's like, wow, I'm supposed to only talk to the coach, you know, uh, once a week. And, but you, you really need to reach the coach. You can pick up the phone and give them a call or give her a call. And we're not going to say no. Let's put it that way. Right. We want, you know, we're, we're successful only when you're successful. Once again, we've been speaking with Chris Carmichael. This is the first in our weekly conversation for the month of January about some of the questions almost everybody asks, especially if they're a new rider or if you've been riding for a long time. Chris, thanks a lot. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you next time. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Chris Carmichael will be back with us next week for another training tip. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, it's off to London to speak with Paul Lee about how technology is making cycling more accessible, more desirable, and safer. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU University Heights, from the campus of John Carroll University. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. Last week, I read a lengthy report produced by three researchers at Deloitte's TMT, Technology, Media, and Telecommunications Division, about how some of the new technologies, especially apps, are changing and will change the way we cycle in urban areas. So, of course, me being nosy and all, I decided to contact the head researcher, Paul Lee, and here's what he had to say. Hello, Paul. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're in London. We're here in the States. What's it like today over there? It's been freezing, but very sunny. But it's dark (laughs) right now. Yeah, well, this is Northeast Ohio, so it's always gray this time of year. And it's every shade of gray you could possibly want. I want to talk about this report that you and two of your colleagues wrote back in December of 2019. Uh, it was a very comprehensive report titled Cycling's Technological Transformation, Making Bicycling Faster, Easier, and Safer, All Good Things. Uh, you predicted billions, not millions, more trips by bicycles by next year, 2022, uh, over 2019 levels, which would in turn mean fewer trips by cars, as far as I could tell, right? Every bicycle commuter's dream. So no one was predicting a worldwide pandemic. How has that affected what you've, you were seeing back in 2019? What the pandemic did was really, really disrupt um, a lot of existing behaviors. And some of them um, benefited cycling. So for example, there was much more of a focus on outdoor activity and also not using public transport. So bikes were great for exercising and also good for traveling without sharing a vehicle with uh, other people. So that was definitely a stimulus. And that also led to roads being um, reorganized to support more dedicated cycling. And one of the big challenges uh, for cyclists and for non-cyclists in particular And so the creation of dedicated infrastructure, I think, was really important. However, all that said, not all the infrastructure has stayed in place. And my optimistic side says it would be great to get more of this infrastructure becoming permanent and being built on. But also my realistic self is also the view that um, it may may be difficult for some of these structures to stay. We did not have as much alteration of infrastructure here in Northeast Ohio, but I know places like New York City did, places on the West Coast did, and I know people are not taking public transportation, so that's another problem. But but why do you believe, or even back in 2019, why did you believe there'd be so many more cyclists on the, the road? <laughs> yeah, so what we're predicting, were, I mean, there are billions of journeys which are done every single day. And so if we're talking about billions more over the course of a year, it's not very many. And what we were expecting was we would move from low single digit share of transport 
by bicycle to a slightly higher but still low single digit share of um, journeys by um, by bike. So when we look at the number of cities where bicycling is part of the journey, there are very few of them around the world. So you've got Copenhagen, you've got Amsterdam, you've got Rotterdam. And that more or less is it. And these are cities which have spent decades reshaping their urban infrastructure and also reshaping the narrative around cycling. And each city, I think, also has got different characteristics. So the smaller the city, the better that cycling is. But also, I think it's the case that the less car transport that there is, the smaller that cities can become, because you need to dedicate less space to roads and to parking. Your report said underlying the growth in bicycle riding is an array of diverse technological innovations, including predictive analytics, product and application design, wireless connectivity, digital urban planning tools, 3D printed parts, which I found very interesting, and electrification. Break down some of that for me, Uh, especially the 3D and the digital urban planning tools. Some of these things have come to pass. Yeah. So one example, which I think is really fascinating, if you think about how people walk or whether they choose to walk, Um, So in a city like London, we've got roads, we've got um, buses, we've got metro systems. And a lot of people don't realise distance. And then came smartphones. And with smartphones as they advanced, came travel apps, which included a walking option. And suddenly people realised how fast it was to get from A to B. So there are lots of travel apps which default to cars, but also have public transport, and they get more and more sophisticated, and they also include walking. And what they're starting to include now is cycling options. And I think when you look at cycling, you realise how quickly you can move around in a city if you choose to cycle. And then when you've got things like just these apps, and you add in things like location, and the location of, for example, shared bikes, then the number of barriers to using a bike steadily diminish. So that's one of the ways in which this technology really helps. Now, in terms of 3D printing, this is more niche, but this gives you the ability, for example, to have custom-made helmets, which cost hundreds of dollars, but can be shaped to your head. So you know, if we think about you know, the barriers, one of them is feeling safe. And having a really good helmet is a incentive to venture out um, on a bike. But I think one of the big things, you know, in terms of how do humans behave is if you get from A to B faster than anybody else, it makes you feel good. So let's harness that emotion. And the great thing about these bike apps is they show you just how quick it is or just how small a city is to get from A to B. And in London, you know, the fastest mode of transport is a bicycle because there are more um, routes, um, but also because it's the fastest speed that that you can go at. So in London, you know, pre-pandemic, speeds would be below 10 miles an hour even slower at at certain times. And uh, so if you go on a bike, you go really fast because um, you can go, let's say, to 50 miles an hour. So that's a limit at which you can go on an electric bike. And really, nothing can compete with that. (laughs) So there is no 
faster approach to get from A to B often than a bike. But we need apps to show us just how fast it is and to show that comparison between different options uh, to goad you into going, I'll take the bike. And that's one of the reasons why cycling in Copenhagen is very popular. Not because it's good for you in terms of health or because it's green, but because you get there faster and we're a competitive species. Interesting. Very interesting. Let me remind listeners, we're speaking with Paul Lee. He is in London. We are here in the States. He's with Deloitte and he and two colleagues wrote a uh, a paper for this technology, media and telecommunications department. I assume that's what it is, a department of Deloitte called predictions. And we will give you a link to that before we end up uh, our conversation today. I wanted to ask you sort of what's going on in London now. I mean, I was reading that London would be closed down, the central London, to cars at one point to allow more biking and walking. Has that happened? And has the pandemic changed any of that? So one of the features of London is, so we have really good public transport infrastructure. And that's like a a great metro network with a lot of capacity. Um, We have a lot of buses and it is very difficult to to take a car. So for decades now, we've had congestion charging in the centre of London. So you have to pay to go in. So the cost of going into central London by car, so this is a very central area, is £15. So say about $23 per day. If you have a car of a certain age with a certain engine, you pay even more. If you have a polluting car, you pay even more for parking. So it's almost like $10 uh, an hour. And if you have an electric car, you pay almost nothing. But uh, conversely, now the pandemic's impact varies by city. So London has a lot of people in the centre of it who can work at home, like me. And so offices haven't filled back at all. So even pre the current lockdowns, the rate of return to offices was about 14, 15%. So London is pretty empty. And I used to go cycling in the summer and London would be really empty. Uh, And um, over the holiday period, we'd go for walks in London and it's really empty. Um, So in terms of space to go cycling, it's phenomenally good. Um, but these are unusual times. So as soon as we can get back to offices, so hopefully at the end of the year, then we reset, um, I think, uh, all the thinking. And we have to start looking at, so how do we move uh, move around? And it's quite possible that cycling will be a larger part of that mix. Now, you talked earlier about parking. And this is one of the other things around cycling. Disincentive is I worry that my bicycle will get stolen. And one of the ways of uh, addressing that is by having more um, parking space for bikes in offices. And so we've got this gorgeous brand new office in central London with 500 bike parking spaces as an incentive to get people to cycle in. And there is no provision for any private car parking which I guess if you're in the US is quite unusual. Even the rest of Europe, no provision for parking for employees is very unusual. So basically, um, so in London, Deloitte is about 10,000 people. So we're one of the largest employees, but there are very few people who drive in. 
So you are, well, no, you're not going into the office right no. now. But if you were, you'd ride in. I would consider riding in. I used to use sort of the metro and my total journey was about 35 minutes. So I'm quite lucky in the space. I live quite centrally. But one of the things I would miss if I was cycling is walking. Because when I walk, I think. <laughs> so it's kind of a way of daydreaming. And in the role that I have being a researcher, um, connecting the dots is really important. When you're at a desk, you don't connect the dots. Um, when you're in meetings, sometimes it's easier to do. When I'm presenting, coming up with answers, it's a great way of connecting dots. But, you know, um, walking is a great form of um, thinking for me. Um, and so what I do, though, is that when I'm going to meetings, um, so I used to take cabs because it was easy, because there was more space. And there were a few people. Um, and then I moved to walking and also now I occasionally cycle. And cycling to almost most of the places which take half an hour to walk to, um, I can do by bike. And there are lots of shared bike schemes um, in the area which permit that. So we've got manual bikes, we've got e-bikes, lots of different companies. All you need to do is know where to um, find a bike, which is via an app, tells you the chart in each week and then know where to go. Very interesting. I want to talk about e-bikes and I want to talk about bike share. But the last thing before we take a break is I'd really like to talk about infrastructure mm -hmm. and how, whether London is thinking about changing infrastructure for more cycling. Um, I know things are happening here in the States. Uh, what's going on in Europe in places other than Copenhagen and Amsterdam? <laughs> Now, over the course of the last 12 months, um, there are dozens of cities which have allocated more space for cycling. The big question is, how permanent will that be? Because it's very easy to create a segregated bike lane. You know, it's a few hundred thousand uh, dollars um, to do that. So what's happening in many cities is the creation of varying degrees of bike lane. So the easiest thing to do is just paint a line on the road. Um, but right. that's not very safe. Um, the next thing to do is to put up bollards which gives you more security, um, but is then superimposed on existing car infrastructure. So it's not often ideal. Um, so integrating bike lanes and bus lanes and bus stops is very hard to do. So in a sense, what you have to do is build brand new infrastructure, um, which is challenging, but that's what's happening. So in London, what we've had is more and more highways being put in um, to enable people to cycle. And they get used. And the travel times for people who use bikes um, are getting lower um, and lower. And so you have hordes of people. Um, and you would have even more, I think, if you made it um, less competitive. So I guess, you know, like as with New York, what uh, has happened is sometimes you get a lot of people who are often setting personal bests on the way into their office. And that puts off people who just want allegedly stroll into the office wearing their workwear as opposed to wearing... Um, black lycra, which is a favoured uniform of um, uh, some office workers, <laughs> of some genders, <coughs> of one gender. So, um, in particular, yeah, right. uh, yeah. So there's more infrastructure going in, and um, you know the challenge is how do you build that infrastructure? And with more and more um, uh, sort of advanced planning techniques, the ability to create um, like a digital twin of a city and to simulate. 
um, what the flows of traffic would be for all modes of transport. Um, if you were to change a road layout, that's where technology can come in. Um, and there's quite a few cities where they are looking to, for example, reshape um, a city centre. Um, and it may just be, uh, let's say, a, a square kilometre or even half a kilometre uh, square, um, but be able to simulate how traffic may flow and pedestrians may move around and the impact on things like deliveries um, is something that uh, technology just enables. We are speaking with Paul Lee. He is with Deloitte. He's in London. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about e-bikes and bike sharing. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on the show. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Paul Lee. He's a researcher for Deloitte in the UK, in London to be exact. And we are speaking about a um, a research paper that he and two other colleagues published in 2019. And I wanted to know how it's relevant to today. And it is still relevant. Uh, It talks about cycling in a lot of really positive ways, which we all like. So we broke off and we were talking, we were going to talk about e-bikes. Um, what are you seeing with e-bikes? And you mentioned earlier in the show that 15 miles an hour was the maximum for e-bikes, which is a, what I think is called a level one or something like that. It has it has a designation, uh, one, two, and three. Is that what is allowed in London? And are people using them? Are they buying them? So the thing about an e-bike is there is a limit, which is 15 miles an hour in the UK. The rest of Europe is about um, 20 kilometers an hour, so it's slightly faster. And what that refers to is uh, the speed at which the battery power will take you up to. It is not a speed limit for the bike itself. So if you're going downhill, you can get up to 30 miles an hour off your own steam and off the kinetic energy from having a bike which is um, up a hill. Um, so where the um, battery comes in is when you're starting off at the lights, when you're going uphill, when you've got a headwind, when you've got a heavy load. Um, but what um, an electric battery enables also is a reconfiguration of the bike. So if you think of um, how bikes are designed, they're optimized for weight. So they're fantastic devices in terms of converting human energy into distance traveled. But if you have an analog mechanical bike, then you optimize for weight. And there are fantastic advances there. But if you add a battery, then you don't have to optimize for weight. And you can optimize instead for volume. So you can start saying, I will design a bike which um, incorporates space to carry a couple of toddlers or the weekly shopping. Or it could be um, deliveries for a delivery company. Um, So you can start reimagining what a bicycle is and i think that's one of the, one of the most powerful aspects of um e-bikes um but it's important to bear in mind that e-bikes are not the same as electric cars so electric cars are cars with an electric engine in um an e-bike can be the same but also can be very very different um and, and that's a critical thing when you think about what it is that electrification does for bikes is it enables the bike to be reinvented one of the areas you talked about pretty extensively in your report was about bike share. 
we've been watching bike share in the U.S. for a long time. They seem to come, they seem to go. And I'm wondering what you're seeing as far as London and Europe goes, but worldwide, is bike share expanding? Are there, is there more bike share? And why am I not hearing as much about it as I used to? Yeah, so bike share, um, I would say is expanding and also is electrifying. Um, so uh, one of the great things about having a docking station, for example, is that um, you can use that for charging. So one of the challenges in the business model for uh, electric bikes is how do you charge them? And at the moment, it's basically getting people um, or or sort of employing people to gather up bikes and doing um, charging uh, of them, which is has scalability uh, challenges um, to it. Um, So the other thing that's happening is there are more companies entering the market, trying out different approaches. Often what happens when you have uh, new bike sharing schemes is you get um, sort of uh, litter from bikes being left all over the place. A simple solution is parking spaces are redesignated as electric bike share spaces. And you can get about five to ten bikes in the space um, of a parking space, at least a European one. Probably you could get more in a US one because you've got bigger vehicles. But the great thing, though, is that um, you're starting to see the rationalisation of a lot of these schemes. So you don't want to have urban blight from bikes scattered all over the place. But they're simple solutions. You just designate spaces where they're left. You use apps to identify where they are and see how much charge um, that's in there. You use apps to uh, help you navigate from uh, A to B. And there are also even uh, things like dedicated um, navigation tools that you can place onto bikes, which just show you the arrow. So you don't have to be looking at a smartphone while cycling to know how to get from A to B. So you've all these different technologies which are assisting, which are reducing the constraints on on cycling or the excuses that people could have um, for, for not cycling. Exactly. What's the excuse today? Well, it's raining. Yeah. What happens when it rains over there? Do people revert? I mean, public transportation is probably pretty empty right now, right? So I remember one day I was in Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands, and it was probably pouring down with rain. Absolutely. And it was sort of like it's the kind of conditions where, so I was being driven by a colleague and I was thinking, I'm so glad I'm not driving because this is really hard. Do the cyclists care? No, they just keep cycling. And uh, when I say the cyclists, it's most people. Um, And also what you see is, uh, so getting wet sounds like a massive inconvenience, but if you've got the right clothing, um, it's not really uh, an issue. And again, it's overcoming that perceived worry about what could go wrong. And the reality is, it tends to be fine. Um, At extreme cases, uh, at least to me, because I'm not used to seeing that. um, So you get some cyclists in the Netherlands, when it rains, they carry an umbrella. So they cycle with one hand on the handlebars, and the other hand holding the umbrella. That's their solution to it. Perhaps the Dutch are more laid back than the English. Um, Perhaps. It doesn't sound as safe to me, but what, what can I say? Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing is, you know, we worry a lot about falling off, but the and i think sometimes the you know sort of like cycling in some environments is really frightening but if you're in an environment where cycling is regarded as normal then um everything is safer and drivers know how to coexist with cyclists and that's one of the big challenges that i've seen in um, some other markets is 
motorists don't know how to coexist with cyclists. And a lot of cyclists don't know how to coexist with motorists either as well. It's true. It's true. That is one of the biggest issues is a lot of people think that drivers are angry and what they're finding is maybe they're just scared, you know, of overtaking a cyclist mm-hmm. or how to pass them or, or whatever. And that's the last thing I really want to talk about besides updates to your, to your um, report. And that is you mentioned that there's technology to improve safety. What kinds of things are making cycling or could make cycling safer? We see lots of crashes here in the US. Yeah, so basically you know, every single technology that exists out there is um, a tool that could be applied in a myriad uh, number of ways. And um, so if we think of something as mundane as, let's say, a video feed, so one of the benefits of a video feed in major cities would just be to encourage more civic cycling. And what I mean by that is by discouraging hostile behavior. And whilst we would like to believe that everyone behaves really well in cities, they don't. Um, and when there is a chance that their uncivic behavior may lead to a fine, then they behave better. It's just one of the mechanisms which is out there. So something as simple as that, I think, makes a difference. Um, There are also lots of advances with the calibre of lighting. So over the last decade, one of the big innovations is the use of LEDs for lighting. We have that in homes. um, We have that in things like, you know, Christmas tree decorations. But uh, applying that to bikes makes a big difference because LEDs can be brighter and they also consume a lot less power. So the visibility of a cyclist in in darkness um, is a lot um, greater um, as well. And then there are also other technologies, which I think are a bit more fringe. Um, So there are airbags that you can wear um, and they will use things like accelerometers to detect when you've fallen. So the same kind of technology that you have in smartwatches or smartphones to detect movement so gyroscopes and accelerometers can be placed into these airbags. So if you do fall, then you have a cushion. These airbags, the demerit is basically you wear them um, and they're warm. <laughs> so um, for certain months of the year, they probably uh, are pretty uncomfortable um, to, to have. Um, but I think one of the biggest benefits in terms of um, safety is just you know, creating um, safer infrastructure. And that may be sort of at the simplest level, guiding people along quieter streets, providing the data to city planners to work out where to put in um, routes which are just for cycles, uh, just for cyclists. Um, So one thing that happens in the Netherlands is that there are shortcuts connecting, let's say, towns, um, which are for cyclists and pedestrians, but not for uh, motorists. So it's a creation of that kind of infrastructure. And also there are things like, um, so LIDAR is a form of um, radar which uses light. So it's what be, what's being used for self-driving cars. And you can apply that to bikes um, hypothetically as a way to um, automatically brake a bike um, to prevent a collision. So with cars, what you have is automated braking. And this will come through to um, bikes as well. There is more investment which goes into cars, but a lot of these, you know, sort of um, investments. So, like the phone which I'm using uh, now has got lidar in it, 
um, and it's one of the first ones to have LIDAR. And we're looking for applications. So, and that can see, I think, up to five meters. Um, but, you know, if you were to have that on the front of a bike linked to hydraulic brakes, then you can have a form of automated braking. And if it were really good, the cyclist wouldn't even notice that the uh, braking was being done for them. But, you know, when it comes down to it, every single technology that's out there could be used to make cycling safer, faster, more enjoyable, healthier. Every single one of them. So the last thing I want to talk about is what you're predicting now, what you're seeing now. So this report is now a year old, even though most of it is still applicable, I think, to to what we're seeing today. Do you have any predictions or updates to your original comments? And I mean, there are lots of charts or lots of graphs. Again, we're going to give people a a link to read the original report. But um, do you have any updates? Or anything new? I mean, since the report was published, so what we'd expected was a um, rise in uh, e-bike sales. And partly that was being boosted by uh, lockdown and various different um, activities that result from it. So, for example, during lockdown, you've got, let's say, um, some households whose income diminished and other households whose income due to forced saving went up. Um, And so um, they've splurged in some cases uh, on e-bikes. And also you've got tax policy, which has changed in some uh, countries to incentivize the purchase of uh, bikes. Um, and then also what we've, um, what we were expecting was uh, for cycling to become integrated into standard um, operating systems for smartphones. And that's happening. Very few cities covered off, but it's a good start uh, to happen. Um, over the course of this year, 2021, it's quite hard to call because a lot of what's going to happen over this year depends on the rollout of um, vaccines. And um, there are predictions that I hope will come true. And there are other predictions which I think are sort of, you know, more realistic. You know, post-vaccination, um, are we, you know, the easiest thing for us to do is to snap back into our old habits. But what would be great to see is a focus on building back better, which includes a healthier population. And uh, part of driving that health or the health of a nation is encouraging exercise. And I think cycling has a role uh, to do with that. So one of the things that actually happens over here is, um, so when it comes to um, the the health system in the the UK, one of the experiments that's happening is something called social prescribing. And what that means, it's got nothing to do with socialism, by the way, Um, so uh, but what that means is rather than prescribing medication um, for an ailment then sometimes what is prescribed is a means to encourage uh, a lifestyle change so somebody in their 60s perhaps needing to shed a bit of weight to improve uh, cardiac capability what they can uh, opt to have is cycling lessons so uh, and the reason for that is to get people comfortable with cycling again. And the view is that once they overcome the fear of cycling, they will cycle again. How interesting. Yeah. So, um, and this is one of these schemes which was starting to gather pace um, a year ago. And this is something sponsored by multiple ministries. So not just health, but also um, sports and uh, other, you know, so there was uh, a multiple ministers which were working together on this. And distracted by dealing with a much more pressing problem, which is COVID. But um, post 
this year, um, things like social prescribing and just getting people, um, nudging them into bit into healthier habits, um, I think are great. And that's, and again, comes back to technology is great at nudging. You know, think of smartwatches. They don't innately make people healthier. They nudge healthier habits. Same thing with apps. They nudge behavior. They harness egos and you know, the, the competitiveness to make people consider alternative transport choices. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Could you please give our listeners a link to your report and how to keep sort of track of what's going on at Deloitte with this kind of research? Um, I can email it to you. Oh, okay. And then I'll put it up on our social media. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, Diane. Thank you for hosting. Take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. Polly is a UK partner and the global head of research for technology, media, and telecommunications industry at Deloitte. If you'd like to read the report we discussed, you can find a link to it on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, and also on our Facebook page. My thanks to Paul and to Gersh Kunzman for joining me this week. Also a big thanks to Chris Carmichael for his wise words about training. And next week we'll be discussing the whys and wherefores of cadence. Also on the show next week, we'll be talking with the director of Bike Pittsburgh about the organization's plans for 2021, which were very much curtailed in 2020 due to COVID. Hopefully we'll begin to normalize our bicycling lives this year. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to join the conversation on our Facebook page or leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, where all of our episodes are archived for your browsing and listening pleasure. Also, if you have a moment, please rate our podcast on your favorite app and leave a review. I hope you have a great week. Please remember to stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, and if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.